So I am silenced. I do not own my own truth. I do not own my own reality. I've had movies and miniseries made about me. I couldn't participate. I can't even tell you if they're accurate. I may never own my own voice, mm. but I am going to make sure that other people do. I've been having some mind-blowing conversations with women in preparation for an upcoming book I'm working on. These women, all fire starters, uncovered their spark and they're using it to make change in their lives and in the lives of others. During the month of January, I am so excited to share a few of these conversations, one each week, because we could all use a little fire in our lives as we start the new year. Make sure you're subscribed to my Substack at shannonwatts.substack.com to listen to these transformative conversations with women who are living on fire. I am so thrilled to be talking to Gretchen Carlson. She is a renowned journalist, a best-selling author, and now an internationally recognized advocate for women's rights in the workplace. Gretchen's life has taken so many twists and turns from youth violinist to Miss America to journalist to women's empowerment advocate. And I'm really interested in learning more about how she navigated that nonlinear journey. What is it inside her that has propelled her forward, not just from accomplishment to accomplishment, but how has she kept going despite the difficulties she's endured along the way? What obstacles has she faced internally and externally? And how has she had to work to overcome them? And what wisdom can she share with all of us about how to find our spark, to protect it, and to start a million little fires in our own lives? I have long admired Gretchen for her fearlessness in standing up for herself and speaking out to protect others, not just online, but in real life too. Gretchen is courageous and audacious. She's a trailblazer and a truth teller. She is powerful and principled. And in other words, Gretchen is a fire starter. Gretchen, thank you so much for having this conversation with me. Thank you. And thank you for the lovely introduction. I appreciate it. My life has worked in twists and turns. And, and I do have a story about how I've survived and what I think are my cornerstones in my life. Well, let's dive into that. When I was researching you, I did not realize that you were a distinguished youth violinist. <laughs> you also have excelled academically. You studied at Stanford and Oxford. I'm really interested in the fact that you studied the works of Virginia Woolf. You were named Miss America in 1989. You worked as a prominent journalist for 30 years, and now you're a successful women's advocate. And just one of those accomplishments would probably be enough for someone in one lifetime. <laughs> I'm curious about when you look back on that journey, are you surprised or does this seem sort of like the logical outcome? I never expected that I would end up doing what I'm doing now. So yes, I'm surprised about that. I've always been a fighter for women though. So there's been that through line in my life. I remember at my first television job in my early twenties when I suddenly realized that women were not paid the same as men. And it's not because I was naive. I had certainly been exposed to a lot of uh, life and different cultures as a child. But I remember calling my mom and being like, did you know women are not paid the same as men? 
And she said to me, why do you always have to talk about women's rights all the time? And I'm like, because I'm living it. (laughs) And and that was my first sort of awakening to the idea that we were not on the same playing field. I read that you said from a very young age, you were determined to lead a life you could be proud of. Do you remember deciding that? What what was it inside you? Was it a, a voice or a feeling? It was this ultra competitive nature inside of me. I just was really, really competitive. And I, since I can remember, I had this fire in my belly. And I'll point to one story when I was in kindergarten that I think really set the trajectory for my life. And it could have gone in a whole different direction. So the first day of kindergarten, unfortunately, back then, they divided us up into two groups, the group of kids who could read and the group of kids who could not. And they put me in the wrong group. They put me in the group of kids who could not read. And three times that day, I went up to my teacher and I said, but Mrs. Grossline, I know how to read. And she would be like, oh, just go back and sit down, Gretchen, you know, and you know how they used to tell, probably do still tell girls, unfortunately, go, don't be so bossy, go back and be quiet and sit and look pretty. And so I was just passionate about it. I was like, I cannot be in the wrong group. I was five years old and I can still feel myself of running into my house and and slamming the back door and screaming for my mother that there had been this injustice at school. And she called the school and we got it all sorted out. But I tell that story because what if I had not stood up for myself? What if I had not fought for that three separate times as a five-year-old? That could have affected my entire educational trajectory. I could have just thought, oh, the teacher's always right. And you know, you shouldn't stand up for what you believe in. You shouldn't fight for yourself. You shouldn't do what's right. And instead I learned at a very early age that I was going to tell the truth, that I was going to have the courage to come forward no matter how many times, and, and that I was gonna fight until I got it right. And you know, I thought about that little girl a lot before I jumped off the cliff in suing Roger Ailes at mm. Fox News. And I, I wanted to do her right. It took so much more courage to do what I did later on in life, but I wanted to stay true to how I had started my life and and how I hope I've lived it ever since. Gretchen, you just referred to this as a fire in your belly. And, And I've been thinking a lot lately about how we all have a unique spark inside us. And whether we nurture that spark determines how we present in the world and how alive we are with our families and in our communities, what do you call your spark? Do you believe you have a a special talent or a gift? I do believe that a lot of my fire in my belly is, is innate. I believe that I, I was born with that and you you certainly have to cultivate it, but I think that I felt it at, at an early age. So it was part of my DNA. It was part of who I was, but I then had parents who helped me grow that, you you know, and being told that I could be anything every single day before I went to sleep, that just added more fuel to the fire, right? It made it stronger because I had already felt it, but then I had people who believed in me. And I can't emphasize that enough. I just wish every child is told that, and I know they're not, but I oftentimes, when I speak across the country, I ask people to raise their hand if they were told that. And so many people don't raise their hand. And it can just have, I think, a a life-changing 
a reaction in the way in which you live your life. And so if there are any parents out there listening, I hope that they say that to their children, you know, every single day, because it just builds so much confidence. Of course, my mom always said at the end with the caveat, it's going to take a lot of hard work, right? I believe you can be anything you want to be in this world, but you will have to work incredibly hard. And that has just been second nature to me. I don't stop until the task is finished. And that's just the way that I've that I've always been. So I do believe a lot of it I was born with. Your parents support a curiosity to learn and grow. But I have to imagine that there were times during this period of your life before you became a, a renowned journalist that you had threats to that spark, things that threatened to put it out. I read that when your mom suggested you join the Miss America pageant or that you become a competitor, that you felt imposter syndrome. And I also read that you talked about body shaming when you are a Miss America contestant. I can only imagine the kind of pressure that's on you to look and behave in a way that's perfect. Were there things that threatened to put that spark out along the way? And, and how did you overcome that? Yeah. Well, uh, predominantly, my grandfather put my spark out pretty early on when I was trying to become Miss America. He was a minister and, you know, was like a rock in my life. And he believed in me. But he, he sat me down one day and he said, you know, you're, you're never going to win this thing. I mean, look, look at you, you play the violin. That's never won. And, and by the way, you're from Minnesota. It's not a pageant state. And number three, you're short. So like you're never, ever going to win this thing. And it made me so mad that I went to the library, this is long before the internet and Google, and I looked up any book I could find on Miss America and height. <laughs> and I found out that the very first Miss America, Margaret Gorman, was only five foot one. And so I ran back to my grandfather and I was like, uh, mister, <laughs> you know, I've got you on this one because this has nothing to do with height. It's just turned into this sort of feeling that you had to be tall. In my television career, specifically after being Miss America, there were tremendous amounts of times where my spark was put out because there was so much stereotyping of what kind of person I must be if I had been Miss America. And basically it was that I was a bimbo and I was stupid. And a lot of other factors played into that. I think women who have blonde hair are thought of as stupid and not smart. So I also had that not going for me. And, and I learned over time as I went from journalism job to, to journalism job that I understood what was going to happen before I got there, that the entire newsroom was going to be saying, oh, God, they hired that Miss America bimbo. And, and then there were other many other roadblocks. You know, I was as Miss America, I was sexually assaulted twice. Mm. I never spoke about it for 25 years till I wrote my memoir, because I think, you know, women are told to just shove down shame and never let it rise to the surface ever again. So I never told anyone. I was assaulted by two well-known executives at the top of the TV industry. Unfortunately, within a span of three weeks, the first, and they were both in cars. And it's such a demoralizing feeling for all the people who've experienced this. Unfortunately, too many of us have, where I thought that, that they were investing all of this time to help me get into the TV business during the day and that they actually respected that I was smart. And and then at the end of the night, when they're suddenly on top of you in the backseat of a car and you're, there are tons down your throat, you're realizing that they don't respect you at all. 
and that none of that mattered earlier in the day because their whole goal was to get into your pants. Mm. I mean, it, it's just, you know, it's such a horrible demoralizing. And then three weeks later, it happened again. And that one was more violent where the, I was in the front seat of the car that time and he was driving and he took my neck in his hand and, and grabbed me and stuffed my head in his crotch and I couldn't breathe. And somehow I managed to escape and, you know, 25 years later, I saw him on my floor at Fox News, which you couldn't get up to my floor where all the on-air talent was, unless you were a guest of somebody. So he knew somebody. And I panicked. I went back into that 21-year-old young woman of being assaulted. And I slammed my office door shut. And I started to sweat. And I was like, how do I escape? How do I get out of here without him seeing me? It, it was unbelievable how even, you know, as a woman that many years later that I went back to that same horrible feeling. So, yeah, there's been a lot of and, and then I'm not even getting into what happened to me at Fox yet, but there were a lot of situations in my life that could have snuffed me out completely. And somehow I, you know, dug deep and went back clawing to, to try and, you know, find my fire again. The, the comeback after those horrific incidences when you think about what that is inside you, is that a constant desire to achieve or to show that you aren't kind of what people expect about you or think about you or assume about you? It's both, but I have been underestimated my whole life. Mm. Again, for all the reasons we've talked about, you know, being from a small town in the Midwest, having blonde hair, being petite. Most people don't equate that with firepower. And I even had one horrible person who I can't name, who I worked with at Fox News, who used to call me Little Bo Peep. And it was such a, like, it was not a compliment. And that sort of sums up how I have been underestimated. And the night before I actually filed the lawsuit against Roger Ailes at Fox News, my husband and I couldn't sleep, obviously. And we were up at 2 a.m. in the kitchen. And I'll never forget, he looked at me and he said, wow, I I guess Fox News really underestimated you. And I was like, yep. <laughs> and, and that's just been the story of my life. So I'm sort of used to it. It was that I was underestimated. And anyone who knows me well knows that I will never let that sit ever. I will work myself to the bone to make sure that that impression of me is changed and that it is correct. So it's that underdog kind of feeling in me as well, but it's also the achievement. I have to be honest, it's also the achievement. I'm a reformed perfectionist. I finally got there when I turned 50. I tried when I was 40, didn't work, uh, but I, I believe that that perfectionism is a demon, especially for women. And it's so important to teach our young girls that they don't have to be perfect and that they should also skin their knees and they should also jump off of fences, <laughs> just like we encourage boys to do. And they should be loud and boisterous and not be called bossy. I'm interested in talking a little bit more about perfectionism, but but let's go to 2016. You file a retaliation and sexual harassment complaint against then Fox News chairman, CEO Roger Ailes. As a result, dozens of other women also step forward and accuse Ailes of harassment. He resigns under pressure. And then the lawsuit is settled and you receive a public apology. You took a huge risk. I have to imagine there were times the world came for you. 
Did you feel punished for speaking out, for stepping out, for example, by family or friends, colleagues, strangers, the internet? At first, my parents did not agree with what I was going to do. I mean, another thing about growing up in Minnesota is everyone's nice there and people don't really sue each other. So it took a while for my parents to wrap their head around it. Uh, but but after they, you know, especially my mom, my dad couldn't listen to all the stories, but you know, my mom is such a driving force and and so stoic and strong. I think eventually she was like, she had had it too. <laughs> and so I'll never forget the tearful conversation months before I filed, but where they were both on the phone with me and they told me they were with me. And that that was, that was paramount to me actually deciding to jump as well as my husband and my two children who were my greatest concern. They were in middle school and I didn't want them to be made fun of in any way. You find out who your friends are. There are some people who live next door to me who have never acknowledged what I did. There are other people who I hadn't talked to in 30 years who somehow found me and told me how proud they were of me. And so you find out who you want to hang out with. And um, that was a nice way to kind of call all of my social calendar. And then Fox went on a rampage to put out first a bunch of women to high profile women to come out against me, specifically lawyers and judges, you know, because to make it look like I was lying. And then they went to the men and my lawyers had warned me that that was going to happen. And, and social media too. I, I didn't look, if I paid attention to social media, just like you, we'd, we'd both go and do something horrible to ourselves. So I learned from being in TV for so long to not pay attention to that as well. So it just sort of came with the territory. And, and I think I had developed such a thick skin from being a journalist for so long and hearing so many awful things from, from viewers about, you know, my appearance or whatever. And so I, I was ready for it. I was ready for the incoming fire. Eventually you, you got this apology and, and you said in July of 2016 that you felt a relief that you would now be believed. How did your vindication and that public apology impact you? It was the most important part because after my story, I started hearing from thousands of other women across our country and they had had a similar experience. They had also been silenced and they never, ever worked again. And that was criminal to me. And that's when I really decided to roll up my sleeves and get to work. It wasn't for me. It was for millions of people who didn't have the same platform that I had to actually make a difference. And the apology was what all of them said that they wanted to have had. And most of them never got it. Because innate in an, in an apology is pretty much admitting guilt, right? And that was something that I demanded because I knew that it would show the world that I wasn't lying because I knew I also would be silenced and I wouldn't be able to tell the world what really happened. And, and that's exactly how it played out. But it's interesting because even in cases now that have settled since mine over the last seven years, I don't know if I've ever seen another apology. And so it was incredibly progressive for my settlement to have that included. You know, unfortunately, my settlement also had an NDA, but how did I know at the time that I was going to actually start this sort of international movement or contribute to it greatly? And then how did I know that as a result of that, I was going to start working on all of these issues and that a short time later, we were going to actually be having a discussion in our world about not silencing people anymore through NDAs. Like there was no way that I could look into the future and know that. So I just thought it was 
part of the process, which is the way it was explained to me. And that's really the way culturally we've handled these things. It's like, hey, we'll pay you a few bucks and you'll never have a voice ever again. You know, but in reality, they're, they're, that's not what they're paying you for. They're paying because you never work again. That's the difference, right? And so what we're finding now is that the companies will still pay even if they can't silence you. So, you know, I didn't know that then, nor, nor could I have. So I am silenced. I do not own my own truth. I do not own my own reality. I've had movies and miniseries made about me. I couldn't participate. I can't even tell you if they're accurate. I may never own my own voice, mm. but I am going to make sure that other people do. And that apology is really what put the fire back in my belly to start this work on behalf of millions of other people. Let's talk about that. So you get this apology and then three years later in 2019, you founded a movement, your co-founder of Lift Our Voices. And it's a nonprofit organization fighting to eradicate forced arbitration clauses and non-disclosure agreements in workplace contracts that keep toxic workplace issues silent. And that's everything from harassment to ageism. In 2022, your organization helped pass two bipartisan landmark bills. Um, and also these bills ended up being some of the biggest labor law changes in a hundred years. So Gretchen, talk a little bit about what happened between 2016 and 2019. When did you realize that you wanted to take this next big leap in your life? Well, I got a lot of steps walking the halls of Congress. I just started pounding the pavement. You know, it was really sort of this perfect storm of a lot of organizations that have been working on these silencing issues like forced arbitration and non-disclosure agreements, which you say those things and people just get glazed in their eyes because they have no idea <laughs> they're signing in their contracts. But those are the two evils, just so everyone knows. They silence you. Forced arbitration means you can't go to an open court, which, which is your Seventh Amendment right to be in front of a jury. And that's how we've kept all this crap silent for the last 40 years because it's been abused. It's not supposed to be used in that way. And NDAs, the same thing. They're all evil. And this is how companies have covered up their dirty laundry. So I started aligning with groups who had been really passionate about this for a long time. But, you know, they, they because they're kind of wonky issues, they haven't been able to get a lot of traction. And the perfect storm was that I came in with with a with a high profile story and I had an arbitration clause and an NDA in my contract at Fox. So I was a victim of that too. And had my lawyers not strategically figured out how to sue Roger Ailes personally to try to circumvent the arbitration clause, my case would have never ever even been public and we arguably would not be in this movement because I would have been shunted into secrecy like everyone else. So I came into the equation of these groups that had already been doing the work and so I gave it sort of a, a highlighted effort, right? And, and people started paying more attention to it. And so we first introduced the bill to get rid of arbitration for sexual misconduct cases back in 2017. But that was, you remember, Donald Trump was president and he had his own issues with, with sexual misconduct. It's not funny, but he had so many of them, uh, but never had to pay any price for them. And, and so the bill sort of languished. Uh, but then in I kept walking the halls of Congress, building coalitions. I knew it had to be bipartisan in order for it to, to pass, number one. But also these issues are apolitical. Like when somebody decides to assault you or harass you, they don't give a damn what political party you're in. 
So that was my pitch line, especially to Republicans. It was harder to get them on board. And so I had these coalitions that I had built. I knew I needed 10 Republican senators in for, for it to pass. And, and so we reintroduced in the summer of 2021. And then I just, you know, started racking up the Republicans. And I actually had a chart in my kitchen on my refrigerator. And it became a project with my kids. Every time I would get another Republican, which by the way, wasn't easy, we would do a happy dance in the kitchen and we would mark them off on the board. And I finally, you know, I finally got to 10 and that gave enough confidence to the speaker in the House and, the, and in the Senate to, to bring the legislation forward. And, and we got it passed. And, and right here in my office, I have a copy of that bill. I have the pen that President Biden handed to me after he signed it into law, surrounded by so many other survivors. I got the opportunity to speak on that day at the signing ceremony and introduce the president. And, you know, that's going to be a moment in my life I will never forget. And I would never have thought that I would be in that position. Um, but it afforded me the opportunity to go back to those coalitions that I had built and immediately start working on the NDA bill. And so in a matter of eight months after the first bill was signed into law, we passed the Speak Out Act, which eradicates pre-dispute NDAs for sexual misconduct. So, you know, we we got these two incredibly huge labor law, laws passed in a short period of time because of all the legwork that had happened before. And now we've gone back to the drawing board and we've introduced an amendment to my arbitration law to include age discrimination, because that's the next protected class that we could get Republicans and Democrats to come together on. But our goal is to, to tack on another protected class, a new one each year. And so we will not stop at Lift Our Voices until we're finished for all protected classes. So that would be race, gender, LGBTQ+, disability, religion, et cetera. We don't believe anyone should be silenced in the workplace for simply having the courage to come forward. Gretchen, when you describe this work, it's so different from the 30-year career you had in journalism. At least it seems that way to me as an outsider. Would you say it's incredibly different would you say it's something you never imagined that you would end up doing? And how does it make you feel compared to other things you've done in your career? Two things that two of my close friends said to me after I filed the lawsuit. One of them said, there's going to be something good that comes from this. And I was like, holy crap, I don't really see that right now. But she was right. And another friend said to me, who, who knew me so well, said, this is what you were always supposed to do with your life. And and they're both right. I didn't know it at the time, but this will be my legacy. You know, th this work is far greater than interviewing all the presidential candidates that I've interviewed, all the real presidents that I've interviewed. Like that is meaningless compared to making workplaces across America more safe. You said that when you started working on this, that that so many women were reaching out to you in droves. They were sharing their stories of, of pain and shame and isolation. And you said you decided then that your next chapter would be about bringing these women's stories to light so that you can change the world together for future generations. So I'm interested, we've talked a lot about your spark and the fire inside of you, but have you witnessed some of these other women finding their spark during yes. this journey? Yeah, it's such a great question. Uh, one of the things that I heard consistently was thank you for being the voice for the voiceless. Because 
they had not been able to talk about their stories because they had been forced into secret arbitration and had signed NDA and they had been pushed out of the workforce. So they basically lost everything. And not owning their own voice is what is the number one thing they wanted back. I mean, so many of them would say to me, when do I get my voice back? And I'd be like, never. I mean, unless I can help change laws retroactively as well, there's just scores of people who will never own their own their own truths. So yes, that was a consistent thing that 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 they said. And that really that empowered me to first write my book, Be Fierce, where I paid tribute to all these women in sharing their stories about what they had gone through. And, and it was so crazy because we had to change all of their names, all of their professions, all of their demographics, not because they wanted to be secret, but because in a lot of these cases, these women had not actually filed charges or you know made it official. And so if the perpetrator could be recognizable based on their stories, they might face huge defamation lawsuits from the other side. I also did a documentary on the Every Woman story because I wanted to make sure that people knew that this is not just famous journalists and well-known Hollywood actresses. I mean, these are these are members of our military. These, these are teachers, these are police officers, firefighters. These are people who work at Burger King and McDonald's. They work in nursing homes. I mean, it's every, they work on Wall Street. They're lawyers, they're doctors. It's pervasive. And I heard from all of them. And so, you know, wanted to pay tribute to them. And, and also they were my inspiration to keep me going. So speaking of keep going, your website includes this blurb, which I love. And she's just getting started about you. And like <laughs> me, you are in your 50s. I also feel like I'm just getting started, but it's kind of a an important reflection point. So as you look back at the first half of your life, let's hope it's the first half of your life, what do you now see when you look at the pieces and how they fell into place? What do you think makes you feel the most alive? Well, I've always been an optimistic person, but I really have to be optimistic in this line of work <laughs> because there are so many detractors. And, you know, the minute that there's some sort of a hiccup in, especially in the Me Too movement, the media immediately pounces on, oh, the movement's dead. You know, it didn't work. And, and I have to come back and just raise holy hell and, and be like, wait a minute, we've had so much success. What are you talking about? Um, so I have to be optimistic about the fight and we have made tremendous progress, but we have so much more work to do. And that's why I say I'm just getting started. Like, I don't think I'm ever going to quit until, until we solve this, but I'm not, I'm hopeful I can solve this in my lifetime. I'm not sure yet, um, but, but I'm, I'm hopeful. And, um, you know, I'm going to keep, I'm going to keep pounding the pavement un until I do. I, I, I look in the eyes of my children is that, inspiration because I don't, I know you do too. Like, I don't want this to happen to my kids. And I will say that the most rewarding part of finding this kind of spark in my fifties has been watching that courage transfer to my children. And I always say courage is contagious. They got the bug. I mean, I've seen them transform their own little lives, you know, into more courageous people standing up and fighting. And especially with my son, because this issue really is at the heart of how we raise our boys. And I've seen him understand now why mom did this. 
And I think it's made him just so much more enlightened about the inequities in our world. And not that he can make all of the difference, but I think that the more that we can bring men into the equation, that's how we, that's how we solve it. So yeah, you know, I, I, I'm never going to quit. I guess some people are kind of scared of me, you know, um, because I, I'm not going to quit. I actually believe that the relentless spirit, if it's any inspiration to anyone else, I do think it changed the hearts and minds of some lawmakers because they're like, oh, here she is again. <laughs> when you look back on the first half of your life, we just talked about kind of what keeps you alive and what keeps you going. And I love the answer about your kids and courage being contagious. But conversely, do you feel like you have a handle yet on what puts that spark out? And you talked about perfection a little bit earlier. For me, it is absolutely that fear of being judged or not living up to other standards or expectations. Yeah, I think after you do something like I did, you don't give a shit about what anyone thinks about you anymore. I mean, I really could care less. I've got so many detractors on on social media and that, you know, look, to be a change maker, you are never going to please everybody. That's just the bottom line. So I know that making change is hard. And I know that people inherently don't really love change because it, it puts them out of their comfort zone. But that's who I am now. And I don't care what people think about me. I have so much more confidence after what I did that, I mean, throw all the detractors in the world against me, it's not going to matter. I'm still going to fight and I'm going to fight for all these people who don't have the capacity to do the same thing. You seem like someone to me who lives with very few regrets <laughs> that you follow and pursue whatever interests you, but are there any deathbed regrets that you fear having at the end of your life? Well, one regret, and I've rectified it now, but one regret was that I didn't come forward about my sexual assaults earlier on. I fell into the same trap that most women do in, cause that's how we're socialized to push it down and stuff it away. I wonder how that would have changed any part of my life. I'll never know. So that is, that is one regret. I regret that I didn't find the courage to come forward sooner. You know, it took me 11 years. It took me getting fired to, to really pull the plug, although I was already working on the lawsuit. And so I was planning to file it even when I was still working there. They just fired me. You know, they, they my lawyers never thought they were gonna fire me because it was such an obvious retaliatory move against me. But when they did, we really had to go into high gear because we weren't ready yet with our lawsuit. We had been working on it for months, but we weren't ready. So we had to completely re-strategize and, and get it done within two weeks um, and still surprise them with it. So I, you know, I, I get that question a lot. Like, why didn't you come forward sooner? It's people don't understand how scary it is to be living in an environment like that. And the way I described it in my book for as much as I can say with my NDA is that it was like walking down the hallway with a knife in my back and the blood dripping down every day and me looking over my shoulder, wondering who was coming after me next. And if you've ever seen the movie, The Firm, it's just, it's incredibly scary just going to work every day. And so for people who think that you should just jump up and be like, hey, I'm being mistreated. There's just so much else involved in it. Fear, fear for your life, 
fear in general, fear of never working again, fear of being maligned and fear of not being believed. And by the way, when you get to the pinnacle of your career, there aren't that many other jobs out there. So why should it be that the woman in this situation has to like quit the place and try and go to another job or be the one that suddenly has to find the courage to come to come forward? You know, you are encouraging so many other women to feel they can tell their stories too. Gretchen, I have one more question for you. I'm curious as to what is burning inside you right now that no one else knows about yet? Well, I may want to enter politics, (laughs) but I don't want to go through the process. You know, I'm, I'm such a like get to the end line kind of person or the end zone and, and they just tear your families apart, unfortunately. And that's probably why we don't, you know, sometimes get the best of people in those positions. But, you know, I, I'm, I'm toying with that idea in the back of my brain. I'd love to be president. But, yeah, I don't know if I'm I don't know if I'm going to go down that path. Uh, on a much lighter note, I may actually end up going to law school at some point because I did take the LSATs. They've long expired but I heard that you can get into law schools now without taking them again. And my husband just shudders when I tell him this, because he's like, how in the hell are you going to have time to do that on top of everything else? But I would love to have the education. And I sort of feel like I'm a half lawyer right now after everything I've been through, but I'd like to formally be able to say that I'm a lawyer. So yeah, those are the two things. You have lived a life on fire. You are definitely a fire starter and it's just so empowering and exciting and to talk to you, I'm just in awe of your courage, but also your relentlessness. Thank you. Thank you so much. Thank you for listening to this episode of Firestarters. Be sure you're subscribed on Substack to shannonwatts.substack.com so you don't miss a single episode of our conversations. If this episode meant something to you, please share it with a friend. And thank you so much for joining me.